Congratulations! You're listening to a Radio One ninety one FM podcast. Kia ora, and welcome to the second episode of Does, Does This, this Count as Study? Woohoo! Welcome back. We're with Anne today, and she's a very, very groovy linguistics lecturer. Yes, she spoke to us about the zone of proximal development and how students can reflect and learn whilst at university, and not necessarily just through attending lectures. It's quite a bit of an eye-opener to how you view yourself and how you view others, and just how you use language. She's got some beautiful yeah, nuggets of wisdom. Yeah, so, does. so this, this is to lie back in bed is a big one. Or a cat maybe one. a tea one. Or maybe starting to listen to it, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> but enjoy. Hello, and welcome to season two of Does, Does This Count as Study? You are joined by your hosts, Kate and Henry. And today we've got a very special guest. Dr. Anne Ferriark. Welcome, Anne. Hi, it's nice to be here. It's good to have you, yeah. So, Anne, what, what would you I'm say a, your title is? I'd say my title is Senior Lecturer in Linguistics in the Department of English and Linguistics. What is nice. like linguistics compared to other subjects? Because a lot of people have heard about it, but not many people really know the nitty-gritty. Actually, a lot of people it. haven't heard about it, and I'd be one of those people because... <laughs> I didn't hear about it until at some point in university. So that's when most people hear about it, if they run across it. So basically, linguistics is the study of language. It's the systematic and scientific study of language. So when we write our articles, for example, they look more like the kinds of articles people in the sciences write than people in the humanities writes. We collect data. We examine it systematically. We report it in systematic ways. So basically, linguists look at how people use language, which is the area I'm interested in, how people learn and teach language, which is another area I'm interested in, but especially what language is, language as an object. So how the lang- how language is structured, the processes that our brain uses in order for us to understand and use language. So there's some overlap with psychology there. So it covers a lot of different things, mm. but those are probably the core areas. Actually looking into it, I've realized that linguistics is almost in everything because it's all language. It's how we look at language. It's everywhere all over the world. It is, and yeah. it's all over almost every subject that you learn at university, for example, uses language. So language yeah. is a, completely all around us, but it's also an important part of how we understand everything that we teach at a university and how we learn to do things and accomplish goals with other people. Mm. So, yeah, language is a part of everyday life. So what is it about linguistics and sociology that you find particularly captivating? And how did you get into this world of sociolinguistics? I guess I was kind of late in getting captivated by linguistics, but language always fascinated me. From when I was a little kid, language was interesting to me. And just seeing letters and figuring out that there were words... And just the whole idea of reading, it just was enchanting to me. For me still, language is very much about reading and that it's 
the greatest activity of all because it's it's a miracle every time you read and ideas are in your head. So I think that's like a key part of what attracted me when I finally found out what linguistics was. And I think the other thing was I remember my dad always singing and like he'd just like wake up early in the morning and start singing and he'd just make up songs about everything that was happening around him. And creating rhyme on the fly, kind of like rap artists do. And so that idea that you could play with language and that you could create strange things and fun things and beautiful things just out of the sounds you make was the other thing that really enchanted me about language. So really, I've got my parents to blame for this. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) I didn't actually start out studying linguistics. Actually, I didn't study linguistics until I did my PhD, which wasn't all that long ago and was right here in New Zealand. Instead, I started out in English literature, and I guess I found it interesting enough, but it didn't seem particularly challenging. And so, like, I jumped around between a lot of different majors. I I did feminist studies for quite a while, which was great because that is where I got interested in sociology and particularly in theory and Marxism in particular. With feminist studies, I met some people in philosophy. So some of the lecturers were, there was a a woman philosopher, Marilyn Fry, um, who was kind of influential on, on me. And so I studied philosophy for a while. I squeezed in some horticulture for a while because that's a practical oh. thing. <laughs> it's very random. Um, but when I did philosophy, that's when I encountered philosophy of language. And that's, okay. that was really interesting. And philosophy of language and linguistics, they're like, you know, they're, they overlap hand hand. strongly. So that's my pathway into linguistics. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's not, yeah, like... An inherently linear pathway that you've oh taken no, to get and it's here. it's actually even more complicated if you get to the part of how I actually ended up here <laughs> at Otago in Dunedin, <laughs> given that I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Would you have studied that earlier if you knew linguistics was a thing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think possibly at the right point. When I was in that phase where I was changing majors every year, mm. yeah, any any major that looked interesting could get hold of me as long as it didn't require maths because yeah. I had to change my horticulture major because I failed maths. I failed dummy maths, in fact. I couldn't do algebra. That was the first of my many university failures, I might add, because I, I never did encounter linguistics in a way that made an impression on me as I was at university. But philosophy made a real impression on me because it was so difficult to do. And so I, I liked the challenge of it, and I felt like I was learning something, and I stuck with it. And I ended up doing a master's in philosophy, but that's only because I failed my PhD, <laughs> which I didn't fail it. I yeah, just it's not quit. a failure. Yeah. I just quit doing it and took a master's instead. Our first kind of big question is, what are some examples of social factors leading to cognitive development? Well, there's a lot of social factors that influence cognitive development, but the strongest one to lead to cognitive development would be language itself, because language is fundamentally social. Only social beings communicate with each other. You can't If you communicate with yourself, as many of us do when we talk to ourselves, you're positing yourself as another. It's I talking to me. Animals that communicate with each other, the ones that seem to communicate with each other, where we people can see that 
wolves are communicating, whales are communicating. They're ones that work socially together. So lots of animals have communication systems, but ones like bees and ants seem to have relatively complex societies where different bees and different ants perform different functions in their community, and there seems to be ways in which they communicate. Now, they're not using language like we are, but the point is, is they're social, they need to divide work up between themselves, and we humans have to do the same thing. Mm. We need something to help us communicate about what we're doing and enable us to collaborate. And language is what does that. Would that kind of be then defined as cognitive development? Language is what's enabled us to develop as cognitively as a species Mm. as we have compared to the other species we share the planet with. So I would say that language is important to our cognitive development, particularly because it enables us to talk about abstract things. It enables us to go beyond the concrete things of right here and right now to being able to communicate about things that are there in the past, in the future, and and then in the past Mm. and in the future are there in a different location, out of sight, out of mind, but not out of mind because we can put them in our mind through language. So that ability of language to enable us to communicate about things that aren't concretely present is what's enabled us to make plans Mm. and divide tasks up amongst people who aren't even in the same part of the world now. (laughs) Sort of sharing ideas, I reckon, is real important. Exactly, exactly. I mean, arguably, the ideas you have without language are relatively simple ideas compared to the complexity of ideas that require language because they're abstract. I guess kind of relating this to the majority of our audience who would be students at university... How would these cultural differences or examples of changes in cognitive development influence students at university? Yeah, that's an interesting question because when we think of cognitive development, it's usually associated with children. And as they learn language, they're developing cognitively. So once you get to university, you're in your 20s. You're really, you're an adult. You know, you're you're late teens in your 20s. So there's some debate about whether we continue to develop as adults. So abstract thinking, logical thinking, for example, that develops when you're in your teens. But we do know now that there does seem to be some kinds of development that continues. So in particular, when you're at university, you're still developing your executive function. You're still learning to gain control over yourself and particularly over risk-taking behavior. So that's really the bottom line. That's about saying no to yourself. So you're still learning how to do that, but you're learning how to do it over a new category of things outside the supervision of your parents. So it's not about, no, don't pull the tablecloth off the table. No, don't run out onto the busy street. It's no in a much more complex social situation that you found yourself in at university without anybody there maybe to tell you no. Do you reckon we're constantly like developing and getting better like even at older ages or during there's a point where yeah I I do think that I do think that we develop over our lifespan and I think there have been people who've thought that throughout history but in terms of psychology and modern science it's a relatively recent notion that's 
been researched. So I think the development over the lifespan is really important because the other area besides executive control that seems to continue to develop is the ability to construct a narrative of your own life where you get the sense of coherence of who you are and how all your different experiences integrate together. You're basically constructing a life story, and that is something that you do through language. The ability to tell a story begins relatively early. The psychology department here has a couple of people whose area of specialty is in child narrative development, but it continues on through your life, and it seems that the older you get, the better your story gets. And it's not just because it's full of new experiences. It's because you know how to create a coherent whole. You understand the lessons of your experiences and how those experiences fit together over your lifetime and how they've contributed to who you've become and who more you could become. That ability to create a coherent narrative where all the parts fit together begins developing in late adolescence, and it continues to develop through your 50s, and in many people, it continues to develop. So that idea that when we get older, when we're in our 60s and our 70s, that we have wisdom and we can look back over our life and see how things have fit together and why we've arrived to this place. It's something we do in language, and that coherence that we achieve in that, it's through language, and it's something that does develop over our entire lifespan. Just touching on that wisdom, would that be a way of enhancing your ability to narrate and absorb almost like your experiences, like you were saying before? Like a new level of appreciation. Yeah. Is that I, kind of what wisdom, yes, I guess, would be? I guess that's what I think of it as. Yeah. And, and I think in particular, it's about that sense of appreciation you have for having learned something through your experiences. It's A narrative has different parts to it, and one of the most important parts is the evaluative function. When we tell a story, we have a point to make. If we're English speakers in Western countries, we make that point explicitly. America is famous for producing movies that last 10 minutes too long because they not only make a point, but they tell you what that point is, and then they underline <laughs> it a few times, and then they like highlight Screw it in yellow. It, yeah. Whereas other cultures leave that point for the listener to infer. So in Maori culture, it's very common for Pakeha to have trouble understanding the narratives because the point isn't explicitly stated and underlined. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be paying attention, listening, and reflecting and figuring it out for yourself because that means that you are learning. So yeah. there's a lot to be said that that kind of engagement with a narrative where you're actively trying to figure it out is what leads us to wisdom. Our next question is kind of talking about a concept called the zone of proximal development. Yeah, kind of linking it back to how we're talking about university students before. Sure. But like how does their zone of proximal development change throughout university? Um, just as there's a controversy about whether adults continue to development, it is a matter of debate whether adults still have it because the notion's originally about a special kind of potential. So you could talk about the ZPD, Zone of Proximal Development, as potential, but it's a very particular type of potential. It's the potential to take learning from other people and it become a way of causing you to develop as an individual. And in particular, it's about cognitive development, although it can also be about gaining control over your cognitive development 
development and the sense of gaining control over your emotions so that you can think clearly and act clearly. So this idea that you've got this potential to learn from other people and that it's that the zone of proximal development isn't something you have. It's something that happens when your potential is stretched with other people. And I do think that happens at university. I think that happens a lot at university. I think that's what getting expertise in a particular subject area is really meant to be about. It's not just learning a lot of technical vocabulary, but it's about learning to think like a scientist, think like an educator, think like a lawyer, and that by learning the language of the field, learning what people do in the field, that you eventually develop a different way of looking at the kinds of problems that are solved in your field. And you've done that by growing through the support you've been provided in your classes, in learning to solve problems that are presented to you in your lectures and so on. And that that stretches your ability to see the world from the perspective of a scientist, an educator, a lawyer, whatever. I'm kind of like, when you keep saying like stretching yourself, what I'm envisioning Mm. is a rubber band of sorts. And (laughs) this is going to break or snap, right? (laughs) Yeah. Is it going to (laughs) expand and absorb more or is it going to go too far and snap? Yeah. Well, I guess we all all have our breaking points. (laughs) (laughs) So, So maybe that's not a very good metaphor for it. The zone of proximal development itself is a metaphor after all. So yeah. we're just going to stack metaphors on top of metaphors. <laughs> arguably all language is a metaphor. But so we're just going to go around in circles if we do that. If there was like a, a student listening along to this, they're like, okay, cool. Like the zone of proximal development, that sounds fascinating. How do I grow or how do I increase my zone of development? Honestly, it's about your teacher. Ooh. It's about your teacher providing the opportunities for students to exercise their potential. So because there are a lot of different people in a class, it's important that there be different options for students to pick up on so that they have opportunities to figure out how they can respond best to things. So some people need to write things. Mm -hmm. Some people need to talk things through. So basically, you have to give students a lot of different chances. You have to tell them about the subject. You have to make them talk about the subject. You have to make them write about it. You have to make them do problems, see practical consequences for the field. So the more different kinds of activities you can come up with for Mm -hmm. students to approach the same subject matter, the more opportunities students have for figuring out how they can internalize that information and okay. learn to think. Do you reckon think. it's just teachers, though? Or could it be... No, no, students have to engage. Yeah, because I was going to say, like... They have to be prepared to engage. Yeah. Just sitting there is useless. If you're not actively trying to learn, you're not going to learn. Mm. So it is a two-way street. But if you didn't have any textbooks and nobody was lecturing to you, you wouldn't get anywhere. If there were textbooks and lecturers and you didn't attend them and you didn't read them, well, you wouldn't get anywhere either. So it's a two-way street. So bottom line, the zone of proximal development is about the potential that's exercised through learning from others, with others, that you take into yourself and it changes you. Can this also be seen out of uni? Absolutely. Like not with work, but more with like social skills? With social skills and with sports. I mean, the Olympics Olympics right now is a a brilliant example. I mean, I know how to canoe. I know how to use (laughs) a paddle. I'm not Lisa Carrington. You know, and it's not just that she's 
better than me. It's not just that I could like practice a lot. I'll never get there. She's learned to do something in a different way than I can do it. She's she's in this a the zone, zone of that, proximal the development zone, you know? Mm-hmm. And and so I think she has this kind of expertise and a lot of it has to do with her ability to control herself and keep pushing forward. A lot of athletes use visualization techniques in order to reach the highest levels of peak performance. And those kinds of visualization techniques can be used by anybody. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I have and like, they can be really good. You visualize the goal. You visualize every step to the goal. I have a, a personal anecdote of this. Um, so last semester I was studying for an exam and it was a few days before and I was just really like, I thought I was going to fail. It was very stressful and intensive. And so <laughs> a thing I did, I was like, right, I'm going to go all out and try all these random methods and see if something works. And I came across this YouTube video, which was like a meditation type thing. And it oh, was yeah. like, so like you sit down with your eyes closed and they're like, all right, visualize yourself sitting in the exam room, visualize like the yep. people at the front of the room handing you the exam. Imagine looking at yep. the first page and like relaxing because you know the answers. I was like, this is, this seems really strange, but I think I attribute some of my calm behavior in the actual exam to this technique you're talking about. Exactly. There's a few different things there. One thing is, you know what you're getting into. So you do feel calm because there's nothing unexpected going on. The other thing is that if you have a goal, but you don't know the means to get there, you don't really understand what's going on. So a zone of proximal development is about knowing how to do things. It's not a, it's not so much about what you're doing. It's not about memorizing facts in your field. It's about knowing how to go about solving problems or whatever you do in your field. So a big part of taking an exam is actually the exam itself. How do I take the exam? And not so much the knowledge, because if you might know everything, but if you get nervous, you're just going to blow it and you don't read the instructions or you decide to do the, easy, the, the hardest question first and you run out of time to do the easy questions. Mm. So thinking through the process of what you have to do step by step just kind of sets you on a pathway. You know what you're going to be doing. There's no surprises. It's clever. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like you've done it before already, so you're doing it a second time. And that's exactly why athletes do visualization exercises. They picture themselves going through that process every bit of the race. They picture themselves going on to the podium, and it works. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different question, but something that I'm seriously sure. interested in. Over every single language and all of language, what are greetings, and why are they so important? Ah, yeah. It's interesting because I would think that every language has greetings because it seems to be something that animals do as well as human beings. And so it must serve an important function. And that function seems to be that we greet each other in order to have a moment to size each other up. Are we friends or are we foes? Is this going to turn into a a stay and say kind of situation or a fight and fright situation or fight and flight situation? You know, is it going to get dangerous? Um, Greetings are very formulaic, so we don't have to think about them. We can just spontaneously. Hey, how are you? Hey, how How are are you? you? Good morning, sir. And there's a whole range of them. English is a little, has fewer than some languages do um, because English has become quite casual in most Western countries, whereas there are still many cultures where it's quite complex to do a greeting because you have to literally size up the person you're greeting. Greetings require you 
to understand your relationship with the other person in terms of, are we familiar? I know you. I know I can trust you. Or are you? Are we distant to each other, like a total stranger? I know nothing about you, so how do I know whether I can trust you or not? So social distance is one factor. The other factor we have to take into account is social status. So are we equals? Am I lower in status than you, like a student to a principal? Or am I higher in status to the other person? Like, I'm the principal and you're the student, or I'm the lecturer and you're the student. So those kinds of differences are really important in creating an initial way of sizing people up. In English, we have a relatively limited range of greetings because we're kind of egalitarian, especially here in New Zealand. You're very egalitarian, and you don't make a lot of differences between who you can't say hi to and where you really would be offended if you heard something like hi, you know? But in a lot of Asian languages, for example, Japanese and Korean, you have to choose the correct honorifics. You have to address the person appropriate to their place in life. And that... So their language is actually, yeah, it's very hierarchical. I think one of the more complex hierarchies are um, in maybe some Powan New Guinean, maybe Indonesian languages. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's some languages where there's like seven or eight different levels of status that people can occupy linguistically. So you have to choose the correct level. And it's not just in the greeting. It's in every other part of what you're saying to them. So when you have that kind of a linguistic system where status is built into the language such that you show different levels of politeness depending on people's status, you have a much more complicated process to go through in choosing your greeting. Yet, people who use those languages do that very quickly, just as we do it, choose Mm -hmm. hi versus hey versus good morning very quickly too. Innately just kind of start to learn it. There is some evidence that people from culture where politeness is that important are more attentive to politeness and status. No, no. (laughs) It used to be more so. Um, There used to be more differences. Because I find so many students will say hi, especially if you get not caught off guard, but like if you like don't notice them immediately and all this stuff, they get so embarrassed personally. But like I've heard of other people just as if you don't, I want to say don't greet them appropriately, but like you almost don't respect their appearance as much as you feel like you could. Oh, well, there might be people like that. I don't know. I think people are relatively casual casual? in New Zealand and in America, too. I would say, yeah, a bit casual and stuff. We have a special question from a fellow student called Saffron. Yep. So she sent in, she would like to hear a bit about male and female conversational discourse. (laughs) (laughs) And what are some of the key differences and how do these affect both genders in a social capacity? Oh, wow. There aren't many sex differences, so male and female, we're going to just toss that out the window right now, (laughs) because actually in in any aspect of being human, sex differences are relatively minor compared to the many commonalities we have as a species, you know, within the species. We're all pretty much the same, Mm. right? There are some socially constructed gender differences, however, that show up in language. Again, this is in flux. Things have changed a lot within my own lifetime. So earlier research identified things like question tags and the idea that when people go, oh, this is a really small room, isn't it? 
that when women add that little, isn't it, aren't they, don't you, that women were doing this because they were uncertain. But the, ling the New Zealand sociolinguist I mentioned before, Janet Holmes, um, is one of the people who did a lot of research on those and pointed out that a lot of the research that earlier people had done wasn't very well done. And then, in fact, what's happening is that there are different functions we perform when we use question tags. And sometimes mm -hmm. we really are uncertain. Oh, I'm sorry. That was your coffee, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah this she is don't about know factual if it was information, not. you know? So, yeah, you I was uncertain. I grabbed the wrong coffee. But that a lot of times that's not what we're looking for. And when we say to somebody, "Oh, you know her, don't you?" We know they know each yeah. other already. We're just reminding them that they know each other and we're trying to get them to talk together. You're a philosophy student, aren't you, Sam? Yeah, I know you're a philosophy student. I'm just trying to get you to talk yeah. about philosophy student with this other person who's also a philosophy student. So that's about performing a different function. I'm not looking for information. More like an integration, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fated communication. We're trying to get people to talk to each other. So one of the things that came out of this line of research is that, in fact, men show uncertainty with question tags more than women do because men often are engaged in quite factual and exchanges of information and supposedly women are engaged more in making people want to be nice and play nice with each other. Now, of course, that can be criticized on the grounds that maybe there was a time when there were those kinds of differences in the activities that men and women performed, but when women are in the workplace, they're mm. just as information focused as men. And when men are out having fun and being social, they're just as socially focused as women. Mm. So it really is about what activities you're performing. And as men and women have begun to do more of the same activities, you know, men have learned to get in touch with children and women have learned to go out into the workplace, our language ends up changing too. So gender differences, not really. It's more about activity differences. It's interesting because it's obviously changed a lot. Since yeah, it has. What it used to be like. But. Yeah. Interruptions is another one of those areas. So supposedly men interrupt women more than the even, men. yeah, and even when they're really high status women. So male patients interrupting women doctors and so on. Again, I think there's probably other factors that might account for it. I'm sure there are still men who do that, but I also think there are plenty of women who interrupt. Just listen to the Radio New Zealand news broadcasters, the women reporters, interrupt yeah. politicians every bit as much as the male as the men reporters do. So yeah. maybe it's not inherently like a sex difference, but environmental based or exactly. context based. It's, it's about it's it's really it's part of it's about character. Part of it's about the activity you're mm. performing. So news reporters need to have control over yep. the interview yep. because they've got a limited time. Interruptions become the norm. Of course, yeah. they apologize for those interruptions now. I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they're more um, into it. We've yeah. got our final question with you today. So. What does a day-to-day -day look like for a social linguistic oh, linguistist? Oh, God, that's and a hard one. What provides the most joy? Oh, students without question provide the most oh, joy. Yay. Without question. Even when I get students sending me essays to look over and I just check my email for some other reason and there's one in my email inbox at 9.30 at night, I look at it and I think, wow, this is really cool. Whoa, here's some really great thinking. Oh, my God. She's on the cusp of putting it all together. All she needs to do is step back and see it as a whole. Get everything caught 
coherent. Yeah, it's really mm. exciting working with students. Every single day brings me joy. What don't I like? Mm. Administrative tasks. <laughs> <laughs> Admin, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's pretty universal across yeah, all professions. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, every day is different. I like research days best, but I love teaching days too. So, yeah, they seem like different days. So I can't say there's an average day. There's the days I teach and there's the days I focus on research and there's yeah. the days when I try to skive off. <laughs> Uh, I feel like it happens to the best of us, yeah? This might be one of those days. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Anne. Yeah, this has been a seriously enjoyable conversation. Yes, awesome. Especially for something that's actually not in Mel Kate's range of subjects. Yeah, this is is out of our zone of proximal development (laughs) (laughs) to be talking about an alternate subject that isn't science. Oh, that's cool. Well, remember, linguistics is a science (laughs) according to linguists. (laughs) Yes. Do you have have any final advice or little tidbits for any students listening to this? I know you said uh, something before about lectures. Engage with life, honestly. You're going to learn a lot in your subject matter, but what you do for work, you're going to be learning mostly on the job. The biggest thing you can do at university is simply to learn about yourself. That's how you are developing, by learning about yourself. And you learn about yourself when you study. That's true, too. So I'm not saying ignore your studies. I'm just saying try to understand why you're doing what you're doing and what it means to you mm. and your community. That's beautiful. Yeah, like yeah. that kind of relates to what you are saying at the start about reflecting is the most yeah. important way to gain wisdom and all of these yeah. experiences. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a great way to yeah, end I'm gonna up take that the away. show. Yeah. <laughs> Myself. <laughs> thank you so much, Anne. Yeah. And you're th- welcome. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our first episode of season two. Yeah, we're back. Message us on Instagram if you have any questions, comments, feedback, future episode guest requests. Requests? Requests. Yeah, we'll probably do one episode with with someone completely chosen by you guys. Yeah, a fan. Start thinking. Fan guest. So yeah, thanks guys. Over and out. Two weeks. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. Find more at r1.co.nz.